0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign
1: up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW report Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is your host. Sherry and Turpin, we are at The Edge, an Apple Futurist Salon. Tonight we have a very special guest, Dr. Alondra Nelson. She is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and the Institute for Research on Women and Gender. Uh, Nelson's research explores the production of knowledge about human difference in biomedicine and technoscience and the circulation of these ideas in the public sphere. Her research focuses on how science and its applications shape the social world, including aspects of personal identification, racial formation, and collective action. Dr. Nelson is author of Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party, and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. Um, That was published in 2011 by the University of Minnesota Press received the Distinguished Contribution to Scholarship Book Award from the Race, Gender, and Class section of the American Sociological Association. Body and Soul is the first book-length exploration of the radical organization's health-focused activity. Through its activism, the Black Panther Party advanced a social health frame, a distinctive, expansive conceptualization of well-being that articulated biological wellness with both economic justice and racial equality and that would anticipate contemporary debates about racial health disparities. Her next book, The Social Life of DNA, Race and Confiliation After the Genome, traces how claims about ancestry are marshaled together with genetic analysis in a range of social ventures. She takes up these themes in two recent publications that are among the earliest empirical scholarly investigations of direct-to-consumer genetic testing, bioscience, genetic ancestry testing, and the pursuit of African ancestry, and the factness of diaspora, the social sources of genetic genealogy. She's also co-editor of Genetics and the Unsettled Past: the Collision of DNA. Rape and History, along with uh, Keith Wallou and Kathleen Lee. And she's also co-editor of Technicolor, Race, Technology, and Everyday Life. Um, I know you, Alondra, of course, through uh, my first encounter with your work um, by looking at a um, special um, publication of social text on Afrofuturism, um and of course when talking about Apple Futurism we're talking about challenging mainstream um uh, technoculture assumptions of a raceless future. And so that to me um was a very important text that was published in two thousand two. Um good evening. How are you?
0: Good evening, Sherry. It's great to be with you. Congratulations on your show.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Um I am um I am very grateful um, to have you here tonight um, on, on on the show um, i I've had a chance to read Body and soul and I must say um, I was absolutely astonished um, I am in great awe of the work that you did um, on this on this particular book and so um, wanted to kind of start off actually start off with that. How did you get started with this particular project? I got to start. I mean, I had been, as you
0: you were reading the various projects I've been doing, so I've always been interested in this crossroads where, where um, at which, you know, black experience, African diasporic experience meets sort of science and technology and medicine. And... Um, so I initially had gone to graduate school to work on television. I was really interested in thinking about media representation, and I was really influenced by Stuart Hall's important work on television that we forget about sometimes on encoding and decoding and on media representation. And so that's what yes. I set out to do. Um, and then I ended up really thinking, starting to think about the Afrofuturism project. I was going to graduate school um, in New York City at a time when the tech boom with the tech bubble was just starting to to blow up. And so these ideas about race and technology were all around and I wanted to think about those, but I thought it was, you know, it was such an early moment and there was so little scholarship and even popular writing on race and technology that I didn't think I could do a a kind of book link project that would have been required by my dissertation. And so, um, that became the special issue of social text and also this online community it was a, a listserv that um, uh, went on for many years where I met lots of, uh, you know, important scholars. And together I think we sort of kind of tried to think through our various, you know, artistic projects and scholarly projects, you know, what, how it might, you know, how one might think about or work about or write about science and race and technology and race um, on the cusp of the new millennium. Um, and so at the same time, I was thinking also, you know, another kind of prevailing interest of mine was um, health care issues, and I had grown up, um, you know, uh, in the shadow of the emergence of the HIV AIDS epidemic, and that was really formative for me. And so I, you know, watching black communities be um, particularly devastated by uh, the AIDS epidemic, I was, you know, um Curious and, and thinking, and as a scholarly exercise, about how black communities could better mobilize and better organize um, around uh, combating HIV/AIDS and getting access to healthcare resources. And um, as you know, projects often do—you think you're interested in one thing, and you end up in another decade, and you know, sometimes a century before, the, you know, what you thought you were looking at. And I ended right. up in the in the nineteen seventies with the Black Cancer Party um and looking at the way that they mobilized around health activism, around healthcare care issues rather.
2: Right, right. Well, it's interesting because um I mean in order to you know, just to kind of touch on the on the Afrofuturism, Afrofuturism bit, um, I often you know, I I I often reference your work as being a, you know, sort of a, a, a foundation of sorts. We know that there you know that there are folks who have been talking Afrofuturism, but I, I in many ways, I consider you to be the mother of Afrofuturism in terms of theorizing on it, and it still stands, um, you know, the test of time. You know, it's 2012, and that particular text, social text, that particular issue, is extremely important. And as I do my own research, um, I definitely will be um, re- referring to that. But I, you know. But even in thinking about that, in order to understand Afrofuturism, futurism you still need to go back to the 60s and 70s. Sure. And so as you've done your work, you know, dealing with genetics, um, dealing, about, dealing with the politics of, of, of genetics, um, the racial politics, you still need to go back to the 60s and 70s. But as you, your book actually goes back further than that, you go back towards um, W.E.B. Du Bois you go back to Tuskegee, um, you know, and in, in, in even earlier. So we're, we're really talking about an entire century of um, political or po- uh, politicization of, of health, uh, racialization of health. Right. Um, right. So, um, well, I, I think,
0: you know, one of the um – responses that I often receive from people when, uh, you know, I would give them my elevator spiel about this book I was working on or this dissertation at the time would be, well, you know, there was this kind of sense that black communities and black activists uh, rarely had anything to say about science and technology. Or if they did, it was kind of like science is bad, it's always racist, and it's so bad and racist that we don't want to engage it. We're just going to sort of bracket it off to the side and not really work on it, critique it, challenge it, and then sometimes you know, in some cases sort of take it up. And so right. in the course of actually doing the Afrofuturism project, I always had my eye, you know, my my sort of ear perked up and my eye open to
2: these moments.
0: And and, you know, so there's a way in which, you know, you can do um an Afrofuturist read of Du Bois and particularly of his novels. Um uh, and the way that he's right. trying to think about the color line and, and speculative um, uh, ways, um, and it also is the right. case. I, I wrote a, another piece that was in the dissertation that wasn't in the book about Amiri Baraka's um, version, uh, his, his his the play that was a version of the Yakubniz from the Nation of Islam, and you know the mm-hmm. Nation of Islam is it, you know Baraka is very interesting as a, a kind of Afrofuturist figure, as a figure who kind of opens up. This kind of space, but the Nation of Islam, um, the the Yakub myth that the play, uh, his play of Black Mass is based upon, um, really goes back to, you know, it shows how the the Nation and the 30s for, were really engaged in at that point very, um, very kind of elementary theories of genetics um, and race and genetics, mm-hmm. and in a quite and, mm-hmm. and in this case a fairly essentialist way. Um, but mm-hmm. that, you know, but here's a space where we see black communities you know, a, a black community, the nation of Islam in particular, kind of trying to think through uh, genetic technologies and what that means for um, the cosmology of this, you know, religious group slash, you know, social organization. So so part of that mm-hmm. the, the initial chapter in the Black Panther book, *In Body and Soul, was really trying to, in a similar way, establish this a, a genealogy for the Black Panthers. And so it wasn't just Black Panthers come out of nowhere and, you know, they're doing health work, moreover, it's that because of conditions of medical discrimination, Jim Crow in hospitals and medical professions, the way that racism uh, and and economic exclusion worked on bodies and and worked in the healthcare sector um, meant that there had to be lots of um, interesting, inventive and quite often brave and audacious responses. And the Black Panther Party mm-hmm. were just one kind of moment in this larger genealogy, and so that's why I go back to really kind right. of situate them, to make sense of them um, with regards when thinking about them as health activists.
2: Right, right, right. And in fact, you talk about um, talk about uh, you talk about a, a very a, a little known um, case. Of course, we we know about. Brown versus the Board of Education, but there was another another case um, that was actually very important um, in, in terms of discrimination, um, you know, by you know by the, by the health uh, industry. Simpkins versus Moses, um, right, 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 and that was in 1963. Uh, and you also talk about Snick, um, talk about their efforts. Nick, um, the Medical Community for Human Rights (MCHR), um, and so it wasn't just the Panthers, but the Panthers, of course, took it to another level.
0: Mm-hmm. Am I
2: correct? Uh, that's right. Yeah. So there were contemporary, you know, there were
0: contemporary stories. So there's, as you say, the Simpkins and um, the Cohen Memorial Hospital case, which is effectively, you know, a separate but equal. You know, it's a case that's that's sort of um, uh, that 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 hinges on the legality of having separate but equal le- um, hospital facilities and medical facilities that are in some part funded by state funds, um, and so separate but equal hospitals are struck down um, with the Simpkins v. Cone case, and and it's you know again as you are you as you were saying it's a, it's an analog it's a parallel case to Brown v. Board that showed just how both prevalent and how um, insidious invidious activist, black activists, because this was like Brown v the board, a kind of you know was an NAACP you know driven case um, mm-hmm. thought that healthcare discrimination was as it was institutionalized in um separate uh, racially segregated gen Pro hospital and so by the time right. you get to uh, you know it's also to remember you know wonderful um uh, uh, and, and to put in a different context, figures like Fannie Lou Hamer, right, who gives us the phrase "Mississippi Appendectomy," which was her way of of talking about, you know, this kind of um, sort of poignant um, euphemism, one might say, or tragic euphemism for thinking, talking about the way that Black women in the South were being um, were being forced to be sterilized, right? So they right. would go into. Um, you know, for other kinds of services, an appendectomy, a mm-hmm. whatever, and they would come out um, with their reproductive rights having been taken from them, um, and, right. or the reproductive freedoms and the reproductive organs, more the case. Um, and so, right. so the Panthers are totally in this trajectory, but yes, they take it to another level, because for the Panthers, it's in the context of wanting self-determination um, for their communities, for black communities, and also in the context of just uh, you know, a kind of impatience with, um, a, a, you know a, a kind of um, reform-based, you know, legal-based uh, strategy mm-hmm. that people might have been comfortable with even three years before when the um, the the Simpson v. Cone case was decided. It was a ju- it, it started in the courts before that, but um, so so yeah, they do take it to another level, and for them, it's like we're going to start our own healthcare clinics, and so they have these these pop-up clinics. Okay. Um, right and local communities. So it's it's healthcare activism that um, both you know within this larger trajectory of black healthcare activism that was necessary because of Jim Crow and, and segregation. But it's also right. um, done using the, the the ideology, the strategies, the
2: spirit of the Panther Party. And they weren't alone either. You know when uh, you know during the late sixties, early seventies, you had um, of course, you had the hippie culture you know going on you know, yes um, noted you had the hippie culture going on, plus you had the women 's liberation movement um you had feminist radicals who were pushing up against uh male chauvinism and misogyny the health yes. and health in in the medical industry um, you had um you had gays and lesbians who were uh, who were also pushing up uh, up against um this system because during that time. I think up I think up until maybe the mid seventies, um, the you know, the psychologists and psychiatrists routinely labeled people who were gay, lesbian or transgendered as being um, you know, somehow um mentally ill. Yeah, you absolutely. could be Yeah, and you could be um <laughs> you could be you could be you know, put put in a put in an institution. If your family deemed you, you know, to be unacceptable, they could, you know, have you carted away and so we're talking about a time in which groups of people, different groups of people, coming together. And so, I was reading when I was reading your book, I was fascinated by the fact that you know the Black Panthers were working in sometimes in collusion with some of these other groups, um, yes. Sometimes, and that this was part of a larger push, a larger effort um, for the New Left to. Uh, completely transform um you know the you know this idea about about medicine challenging what, what did you say challenging politics of knowledge yes. um, challenging the theories of black inferiority in in, in medicine and yes. um yes yes, and so that's 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 very very important now before we before we continue i want to um say hello to Lisa. Uh, Lisa Rose Rodriguez, could you say hello?
1: Hi, uh, yes. Uh, my name is Lisa Rose Rodriguez. I'm an epidemiologist trained at the UConn Health Center campus in Farmington, Connecticut. I'm happy to join your discussion as a as a call-in and a listener.
0: Oh, it's great to, to talk to you. Great to meet you, Lisa. Nice to meet
1: you also. I couldn't help but wonder, if before I called in, if you mentioned Henrietta Lacks.
0: So no, we hadn't assessment? we hadn't gotten there yet. No.
2: No, we do. No, we're just getting started. <laughs> getting started.
1: Well, anything um, in and
0: yeah.
1: Well, because um, you know, some of your listeners may be uh hearing this idea of health care inequities for the first time, so um I would I'm just mentioning to them a book that um was assigned in a study group I belong to on the Storrs campus, the Healthcare and Humanities campus, which is the main—I'm sorry—the Healthcare and Humanities Committee on the main campus of the University of Connecticut in Storrs. And one book that we chose was the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. S K L O O T, and it showcases um, the story of her life. What's important uh, for the listeners is that Henrietta is deemed as, as Sherry mentioned she's deemed mentally ill and has to be put in the um the Negro hospital for the mentally ill and in 1951 she went to John Hopkins hospital because she complained of having um something growing in her stomach a lump and after going to John Hopkins hospital they discovered that she had a malignant uh, carcinoma yeah really in her cervix so um she was treated and then the tubes were removed eventually and the interesting thing is that her cells were harvested and they continue to be harvested and used for biochemical research to this day and her family received no compensation whatsoever So I'm just allowing the listeners to um, understand this if they want to know more about it. But it is a very good example because there's some issues here. If she has been confined to the Negro Hospital for the Mentally Insane, which I'm paraphrasing, mentally insane, then she doesn't have the ability to consent. Uh, Given her lack of education, her occupation, uh, she was picking tobacco, as I like to call it. I'm definitely from uh that stock of black people in South Carolina who picked tobacco in Virginia too so she's picking tobacco she's not a educated person then she's diagnosed as having a mental illness and then she allows them to harvest herself for research with absolutely no legal consent
0: yeah i i, I you know i, I would, she doesn't allow them right i mean it's not even it's not clear that she even um that that's that she's even being told what's going on. You know, putting aside the inform, informed consent um, issue, it wasn't clear that that the doctors sort of took the time to even explain sort of what was happening, nor that they even thought they had to. Um, and, you know, I think that's what's so so tragic and sad about the lack story is that, as you were really laying out, Lisa, she's just vulnerable on so many different levels, right? So she's um, you know she's a poor woman she's a black woman she's a you know effectively a sharecropper um she doesn't have education um doesn't really have access to health care um and you know all of these these kind of um you know this is a kind of intersectional analysis that all of these matrices of of oppression sort of um you know intersect in some ways to make her you know it's a- it's like a perfect storm you know of um to make her subjected to um, medical experimentation in this particular way. Um, and it's, just, it's an incredibly powerful story. Um, I think, you know, I, I try to offer in, in Body and Soul, um, and I do mention mm-hmm. uh, Re- Rebecca's book a little bit um, in the preface, I try to offer the Panther story as a little bit of as a, a counterpoint um, because, yeah. I, um, because I, I think that uh, Rebecca's book often... You know, I think that the, the one takeaway from that book can be very disempowering for communities of color and I think also women. Because so we have to, one of the things I always want to always say about the Skloot book is that she was diagnosed with cancer at a time when women, married women, were not given by doctors their own diagnosis. So if you were married, right. the doctor would talk to your husband. The doctor wouldn't tell you. And this is if you were a, a sharecropper woman or this is if you were a woman living in Beverly Hills. And so... Her gender also had everything to do with the fact that she wasn't properly informed about what was happening with her own body. Um, but, it, right. but at any rate, the, the, the bigger point that I'm making is that you know we 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 have stories. Uh, there's you know Henrietta Lacks is a powerfully told story. Rebecca Skloot's book, um, but it's not. But it also leaves us, I think, with a sense that Black communities and Black poor people in particular were always just the victims of medicine. And I think that's, you know, not entirely historically accurate or it's only part of the story. And I think also right. for those of us who care about contemporary, you know, for black people's health-seeking behaviors in the contemporary moment, you know, we need right. to, to know how to to tell that story in a way that's not disempowering or does it make people
2: right. more likely not to go to the doctor, right. you know? I think um, you make an excellent, an excellent point, Alondra. Um, and one of the things that I noticed, um, you know, reading reading through this book how Elaine Brown, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, um, you know, their nineteen seventy two revision of the Ten Point Platform, um, right? They they added an as you say, adding an explicit demand for completely free health care for all black and oppressed people. That's not that those are not the words of of, of folks who, who view themselves as victims, but in fact Made it a point of, of, of you know, not just you know making you know care available for all oppressed people, but also those who wanted to volunteer in those clinics, which literally at sometimes they were literally in vans. Uh, any help, anybody who was coming from the health community who wanted to help. Had to go through some sort of political um, education class, and I, you know, say what you will. I mean, I know that there's some folks out there who, who, who you know, who probably probably raising their eyebrows. But you know, I you know, nothing wrong with at least reading. You don't have to agree, but at least read Che Havera, Franz Fanon, um, Mao Zedong. You know, and and two of, and, and as you know, the two of them were physicians, um, and so. This was really about um changing the game. This was really about helping uh, those who were working in the medical industry to understand that what the what industry that they were working in was very much driven by capitalism, very much driven by a certain um ideology that that uh seemed to stress this idea of of you know biological determinism um the notion that there were superior and inferior inferior races and that that kind of mentality needed to change so yeah. i don't know, what, what yeah yeah and so reading that in the, in, the, in the way that you you went about you know um going through the uh going through the archives i i just have a, a, a question for you um what was it like for you going through i mean did you did you did you get a chance to speak to people like Elaine Brown and Bobby Steele um in doing this research? Yes, I didn't interview Bobby
0: Steele um but I did interview Elaine brown i interviewed um a so few i tried to interview you know um rank and file folks um and doctors and so Elaine was the the only kind of quote unquote leader. Um, of the party that I interviewed. And I interviewed folks in Seattle and uh, New York City and Southern California, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. Chicago, who uh, Mm -hmm. had worked in the clinics. And some of them had formally joined the party. Uh, Some of them hadn't formally joined the party. And I was just trying to get, um, you know, I think there are still books and articles to be written about the specific activities of specific chapters. And a lot of this work is starting happen. There are a lot of, um, there are, you know, there's a great book that's about the Milwaukee chapter, um, and obviously there's books about Oakland. Um, But I wanted to really sort of, because no one had really written about the health activism, give a kind of broad swath of it. So I kind of looked at, you know, I went at archives kind of all over the country, anything I could find, um, I took advantage of. And Um, You know, I found things in in odd places. I found things in nursing journals. Um, I found things often in, um, uh, you know, of course, left newspapers, mainstream newspapers, um, you know, the FBI files that are uh, often quite redacted and hard to read, but you could, like, verify things like addresses and maybe the hours when it was open and these sorts of things.
2: Yeah, that the you know the reading about the uh, the FBI um, efforts, uh, Hoover's efforts to uh, to destroy, um, well, destroy the clinics, destroy the um, you know the you know destroy the programs, destroy any efforts. Um, you know, I thought was especially uh, fascinating the idea of the state, you know, coming in and saying, you know, no, you're not going to be able, we don't want to see this, we don't want to see um the oppressed um you know become actualized. We don't want to see the oppressed right. um, you know, be you know, become um independent and to um you know and to not depend upon a system that was broken, right? Um, right, yeah. Absolutely. Right.
0: And you know, and, and the efforts of, you know, the the the, the state's efforts to um to to uh, really um, squash the panthers' work extended into the clinics, you know, and and in some ways it was much like, um, you know, in the same way that they were destroying chapters and surveying panthers, that same work happened with the clinics. But what's interesting about the healthcare activities is that there were also other kind of strategic attempts that the state used to try to block the the panthers' health work, and that was through trying to really tie them up with red tape and force the clinics or try to compel the clinics to get licenses and, you know, insurance and to basically operate like any other, you know, kind of mainstream uh, health facility, you know, and, and really the, the point was part of the critique was there's a problem with everyday mainstream healthcare facilities. So part of the critique the Panthers were offering were in the, the very way that they were trying to, go about the work of health care, you know, providing
2: health care. Right, right. There are two chapters um that are, that that stand out. Um they all stand out. But these two chapters. Um the chapter dealing with cell uh in particular uh dealing with, anemia, uh, mm-hmm. than, uh, dealing with uh, um you know the Panther Party um efforts to um to get the community community motivated to do something about um, sickle cell anemia um, versus Nixon, um, you know, putting together the National uh, Sickle Cell Anemia Act of 1972, Mm -hmm. that particular chapter. And then, of course, um, this other chapter dealing with the proposed UCLA Center for Study of Violence. Um, That particular chapter was especially disturbing. Um, yes, yeah, so yeah. I know that's that's a big 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 chunk here, but um, yeah. whichever one do you want to want to tackle first. Well, sure. I mean, I, maybe it'll be useful to
0: talk about how I I frame those two different types of activities. So I say in the book that the, the Black Panther Party's help activism and we might say this is, you know, we'll have to do some more research, and I hope that folks that come after this will explore whether or not my hypothesis is correct, but that black health activism, because black people have both had both been excluded from the healthcare system and also abused by the healthcare system, it meant that black healthcare activism often looks a little bit different than what we think of healthcare activism. You know, if we think of of UP or something like that a few decades, you know, a decade later. Um, and black healthcare activism in this moment was, was dealing with the ways that um, poor communities of color were underserved by the healthcare mainstream, so that's the sickle cell mm-hmm. case, which I'll say a little bit about, and also overexposed to the harms of medicine and biomedical research, which is the violence center case. So in the right. sickle cell anemia case, um, it, it, was the, it was the case that, the, that sickle cell anemia was a disease at that time that wasn't widely known. It's still not widely known. Um, and but in this moment wasn't widely known at all. And the Panthers um, are, you know, be, because they're working with doctors and because they're they're well read themselves, are, are reading the medical journals and these sorts of things. And there's an article in the early 1970s in the Journal of the American Medical Association by a Black Richmond doctor named Roland Scott that points out how the fact that um, if you look at a, 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 cluster, you know, a set of genetic diseases, that, this, that, um, that there's a lot more money from the National Institutes of Health and there's a, a lot more philanthropy yes. and philanthropic work being done around genetic diseases that affect uh, other groups so that if, if you know, a disease like Tayfax was predominant and, uh, you know, among but not exclusive to Ashkenazi Jews versus a disease like sickle cell anemia, it was the case that these other diseases, Tayfax, cystic fibrosis, were getting lots of attention um, in, 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 as research money from NIH and also lots of in, uh, donations and lots of philanthropic organizations were sort of raising up around them. And compared right. to that, Sickle cell anemia had very few resources devoted to it. And so, you know, two things. One, that the Scott article in JAMA is really laying out, uh, one might say, a case for racial health disparities, right? It's this early moment where people are saying, you know, look at this disease and look what we know about it and look who suffers from it and look at how, you know, how it affects this group disproportionately and it's not getting, you know, um, there's not being attention devoted to it versus this disease over here. And so for him, he, it was a very kind of matter of fact. It, it was political, obviously, and that, that the conclusions about who's getting resources and who's not is a political conclusion. But of course, the, the Black Panther Party takes up, you know, the information that Scott provides and provides it with, you know, a deeply at times propagandistic, but like really, they're really sort of underscoring and underlying uh, the sort of racial inequality that is present if you look at resources that were being devoted at the time to genetic diseases. And so they're saying the sickle cell case is being, is underserved. Like, sickle cell anemia is not getting the attention that it needs and people are dying. And at the time, sickle cell anemia um, was very much a disease of um, mothers, of children. I mean, people live longer now with sickle cell disease Um, in their 20s or their 30s. But in the 70s, people died, you know, often before they reached age 20. Um, and the Panthers really played on, you know, being sort of the, the, the sort of uh, having a, a kind of paternalistic relationship to the black community and really helping um, women and children and, and, and dealing with this disease. And, you know, the thing that was the most path-breaking um, was that they did, you know, community-based, large-scale genetic screening for sickle cell anemia which could be problematic if you didn't have the genetic counseling resources and weren't able to, after doing the initial uh, test, distinguish between carrier status and disease status, and there were some complications with that. Um, uh, But it was um, a a really kind of bold move. It's like, you you know, if the state, if mainstream medicine's not going to do something about this, we're going to do something about it. And we're not afraid of the fact that this is a genetic disease, and we're going to go and get donations or go to a medical supply store and we're going to buy these these screening tests, and we're going to work with doctors and medical um, students and the rank and file members of the party and people of the community to do something about this. Right. On the flip side, right. and and this is what's um, in conversation. I think with with uh, the 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 important piece that Lisa brought to the table about the Henrietta Lab story is that you have the Black Cancer Party in a moment where you have researchers wanting to. Um, disproportionately focus their attention on, uh, and in this case, black and Latino communities, you have the Black Panther Party saying, wait, hold up here, you know, what are the assumptions that you're making about black bodies and about violence and about brown bodies and violence and about black Mm -hmm. masculinity and brown masculinity and violence? We, we're citizens, you know, we are, you know, we have something to say about this research. And so in the UCLA case, um, it's a few years after the Watts Rebellion, and violence, for lots of reasons, is really um, part of the discourse of American society. So you've got the Vietnam War going on. You've got cities burning in the summer, um, We, You know, there's an um, uh, increase in gun violence. There's all sorts of things happening. And it gets spun and a kind of a moral panic in the early 1970s about there being violence everywhere. So the question becomes,
2: you know, who and why and what are we going to do about it?
0: Right. And, and
2: rather than rather than dealing with the social conditions and right. the and the social in, in, in you know in inequities, um, you know, with, with Arthur Jensen from Berkeley um, yes. you know theorizing black inferiority, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the idea that um that there was some sort of genetic inferiority and that it would be manifest in intelligence and behavior. Um, and so, um, I thought, I, I, you know, and to me, reading that, it seems to be a throwback to the social Darwinism of the 19th century. The, sure, the, the idea that um, that there there would be uh, a superior versus an inferior race, and not take into account um, the social conditions um, that that led up to Watts and led up to the to the riots and in the other other parts of the country. And so reading that. Sorry,
1: Sorry, Sherry, I would like, just because I know people are listening, and um, I wanted to make sure that your listeners understood what sickle cell is. Um, I'm I'm not sure everyone understands what it is, and I am calling you from Connecticut. And what your listeners will find interesting, and Alondra as well, is that every baby born in the hospital in Connecticut has to be tested for sickle cell regardless of race. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So that's one thing that Connecticut does. Um, That's how I found out my children have the trait, for instance. And sickle cell really begins, well, sickle cell becomes maladaptive during the transatlantic slave trade. Before the transatlantic slave trade, sickle cell is adaptive for people who are exposed to malaria. Malaria is a zoonotic disease. It's not, um, it's a zoonotic disease that the mosquito is actually passing a parasite into red blood cells or erythrocytes. If your red blood cells are shaped like a sickle or a moon, they do not contain enough surface area for the parasite host to live. So people, it's still, people who have it and live in sub-Saharan Africa find it protective against malaria. So in Africa, you see approximately depending on how far away you are from the equator, up to 30% of everyone has the uh, trait. In America,
2: 8%
1: of black people carry the sickle cell gene, and in that group of people who carry the sickle cell gene in America, you're going to have people with origins in North Africa and the Middle East. So I just thought I would give that piece of um, what the disease is um, amongst people, the prevalence of the disease here in the United States there is a screening. The people who start, the people who start the uh, who are, are given credit for the research think tank for sickle cell are at Howard University. Um, so anyway, I just thought I would give that to the listeners because some people may not be familiar with how the how the what the disease is, how it came to America because it's not endemic to America. We don't see it in America until the transatlantic slave trade allows Africans to set root here and to, um, proge- to you know, to um, generate in population. So I just thought I would add that.
0: Yeah, right. that's helpful. Um, uh, you know, and the, and the panthers are um, interesting because they take up very much this the slave trade part piece of how sickle cell anemia comes to um, uh, be present in African Americans predominantly in the U.S., and for them this is part of the critique. So part of their critique of what's happening in medicine in the 1970s is about, you know, medicine being treated as a commodity and, of course, in this case, black bodies also being treated as commodities. And, and you know, so part of what they're saying is that if we weren't brought here against our will as commodities, so they're really ripping off the population genetics explanation for why um, sickle cell anemia is prevalent. Um, and but they're using it to make a kind of a, a kind of colonial a critique of colonialism and of the slave trade in, in, in the way along the way, and so a lot of their health activism when they were dealing with the the kind of content of medical knowledge be either if it was a dial about sort of genetics and, and inferiority theory or um, or psychosurgery and you know mm-hmm. brain science or neuroscience or you know genetics and sickle cell anemia was to always take these medical theories and to put them in precisely the larger context that Lisa was gesturing towards with sickle cell anemia. So that was always their move. So in the case of the violence study, um, which could have been, you know, there are lots of other, you know, Harriet Washington tells um, in her book Medical Apartheid, uh, lots of stories in the 1970s in which, you know, researchers were allowed to go forward. Um, 70s and 80s, with research on violence in particular, which comes up again, um, the, the issue of violence as a sort of biological issue comes up again in the late 80s and early 90s. There's this big, you know, the meeting um, in Baltimore around violence that gets is quite controversial. Um, but, geez, yes. but, that, but in this case, you know, the Panthers respond by really trying to dig around in, you know, what the theories and hypotheses and methodologies were and you know, again and again, they would come back to a larger kind of social context framing, as you were suggesting, Sherry. Um, in the case of violence, they, you know, I call the chapter um, "As American as Cherry Pie," and the point, and that was a famous saying by um, a former member of SNCC who joined the Panthers, H. Rat Brown, who said that violence in America was as as American as cherry pie, um, and, right. and not, in this case, an issue as these as uh, some. Uh, researchers at UCLA were suggesting a case of disease, you know, black men's diseased brain. Right, right, right. Violence. We see
1: this. Violence and violence and populations can be predicted in the same way diseases can. So, in in epidemiology, you learn that they can. Gunshots can be predicted. Homicides can be predicted, and um, the um, important part of this is if, if the disease prevalence can be predicted then the prevention can be enacted to bring the numbers down. So I just thought I would share that with the listeners who might want to might want to get involved in some way in helping us with this health care disparity or inequities discussion.
2: Well, kind of want to um also talk a little bit about your your conclusions. Your last chapter, your concluding chapter, mm-hmm. talk a bit about the impact of, you know, the the lasting impact of, of health disparities. If this is you know, the the story does not does not end and you make note of the fact that um when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans um, that many of the um health facilities um, we're not uh we're not available, and so poor people um of all races but in particular- black, uh poor black folks had no access to health care and were literally left to you know left to left to die mm-hmm. and um, we 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 see that we see that now I live in the district of columbia and i can I can tell you that um it is a, it is an ongoing issue. There are resources here in the district, um, but there's a difference in in the quality of of, of health care um between those who are able to um, you know, able to use health insurance and those who are dependent on on the state. Um b c used to have a public hospital, um, what was it, D.C. General. D.C. General, D.C. General. Yeah, well, D.C. General, well, Lisa, Lisa used to live in D.C., and D.C. General no longer no longer exists, and so now that it no longer exists, those who were considered to be indigents, those who, who don't have um, health insurance, you know, end up at, George Washington um, University Hospital, and so, you know, all of the, you know, all of the the, the issues that you know that that were discussed in this book um, in, in terms of the problems of teaching hospitals, and, and in terms of the problems of of you know of, of dealing with um, you know some of the. Health professionals and dealing with with the local folks, you you have some of the you have some of the same issues, and so in many mm-hmm. ways we are still dealing with um, you know some of the same issues. We may not be dealing with um, you know in, uh, forced or coerced sterilization and hysterectomy, but we are dealing with some of the other issues, such as um, you know a drastic increase in. Um, Sections and you know mistreatments um, of women of color um, in dealing with you know dealing with um, with the medical industry here and so yeah uh, yeah I would just only
0: want to tease out the the Katrina case because it's an extraordinary case I mean I think that um, you know what you're saying about DC General is you know a wonderful um, well, not wonderful, obviously, but, an, you know, an important <laughs> case study right. for thinking about contemporary issues of health inequality. But what happens after Hurricane Katrina is appalling, right, and, and really um, extraordinary on so many levels. So you have, you know, um, first responders are allowed to leave the city. Um, the hospitals flood. In the case of Memorial Hospital, you know, you have a doctor and nurses arrested because they um, injected, um, uh, they caused the death, they killed effectively several patients by giving them lethal doses of drugs rather than treating them or trying to carry them out. I mean, quite literally, the healthcare infrastructure of Katrina was allowed by the state to collapse. And so, right. um, as I write, uh, you know, and, and there's been all sorts of great um, analysis, including my collaborator on the book, um, Genetics and the unsettled past. Keith Wailu has this, uh, a nice collection on Hurricane Katrina, but there's been other collections that, and other articles and books, of course, that really get at how this wasn't a natural disaster at all, right? That it was really about um, a kind of biopolitics of, of, you know, of making decisions about who gets to live and who gets to die. Um, and there's and an so ugly
2: history associated with that because yes, that a hurricane that hit before, and those people, and when, and the, the levee was. Was deliberately allowed to break. People died. Black people died. Yeah, yeah. it's really it's heartbreaking.
0: So you know, so one of the the legacies that you were sort of hinting at that I write about is the emergence of the Common Ground Health Clinic, and the common and later the Common Ground um, Health Collective in New Orleans. Um, and on the one hand, it's you know it's a powerful kind of um, example of the lasting legacy of the Panthers' work because one of the founders of that clinic. You know, two days after Hurricane Katrina goes through is a former member of the Black Panther Party who had been a member of the New Orleans chapter and who who says time and time again that he, you know, felt that they could start a a clinic after Katrina in in the face of the utter devastation um, that was all around them because he had done this as a cancer with very few resources. So he knew he could do it again with very few resources. But what's different from the 1970s in this case is that the only reason that this clinic was allowed to to come into existence is because the healthcare infrastructure had collapsed. So, you know, today a bunch of radicals in Prince and and uh, in, in Harlem or uh, in Washington D.C. like there was also a, a cancer clinic in D.C. can't just pick up and say we're going to start a clinic. I mean, the state would really come down hard, and they would have to be you know regulated and licensed and all these things. So you know we're right. only allowed in the in the New Orleans case to see this particular legacy of cancer activism because everything falls apart, right? Um, right. And yeah, so uh, but I think it's true. I mean, there's so many of the the healthcare issues that the Black Cancer Party were talking about, particularly as you were suggesting, Sharifa. It's not the, so much the. It's not maybe necessarily the specific healthcare issues. But the larger political frame that they were bringing to the conversation, so that for them, access to healthcare was a human right. That healthcare for them wasn't a commodity, it shouldn't be a commodity in the way it is now. Um, and they were writing, at, and they were, you know, active at a time when the HMO healthcare structure was just emerging. You know, now it's fully formed, but they were really prescient and sort of saying, like, you know, this HMO structure might not work for all people, and there's a chance that making healthcare and a commodity, even in these, you know, planned kind of healthcare systems, actually might create, you know, even grosser kind of forms of inequality, um, which was borne out in some regard. There's an interesting, um, this is somewhat of a tangent, but this is one of my. I, I love this this moment. Um, so Susan um, uh, Joan Didion, rather, in her very famous book, The White Album, uh, and and in the essay of that that same title from that
2: famous book, The White
0: Album. Writes about the 1960s and 70s. So she writes about Janis Joplin, and she writes about the Black Panther Party. And she writes and she gets an excerpt from a moment where um, in 1967, where Huey Newton is involved in a shootout with police in Oakland. An officer dies, Newton is wounded, and another officer is wounded. And Newton is in the emergency room, and Mm -hmm. the nurse is asking him if he's a Kaiser. So he's in the Kaiser Foundation Hospital in Oakland, and the nurse will not give him any treatment um, until she can figure out whether or not he has Kaiser insurance. And there's this, you know, it's, it's the nurse's testimony from the trial, and she's saying, you know, he told me he was a Kaiser, but he didn't have his card with him. Um, and, you know, Kaiser in this moment in sort of starting is one of the, is an early HMO, and it's, it begins in Oakland. It's an Oakland-based, you know, Northern California-based kind of an HMO that goes on to be obviously a national, um, uh, a national health service in, a, in, a, in some regard and also right. a really important health care foundation. The work that Kaiser does right now is, is critically important, particularly around health disparities. But in this moment, she didn't believe that he had insurance. And Didion writes in her own kind of like wry way that it was the case that Newton was insured, um, but the nurse mm-hmm. didn't believe him. And so, part of what that I think leaves us with in this moment is like, you know, even you know, even with the, the passage of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, it's like, who get who's a believable, who's a viable, who's a sympathetic patient, right? Right. right. You right. know, even when you have health care coverage,
2: you know, and you know, when when are you considered a legitimate patient? Right. Who gets to live? Who gets yeah, to it, live? It, it, yeah. Who gets who gets to live? And so, you know. Health, healthcare, um, it you know remains to to this day. Right now, it is still considered to be a commodity and not considered to be a human right. Because of course, if it was a human right, we wouldn't um, would be dealing with. We wouldn't even have to deal with the idea of having to have an Obamacare in the first place. Because it would it would be provided. That we wouldn't even have to have, have have this This sort of discussion, or at least not this not to to the extent that we have we've, we've had to have discussions about um health health care I think there's something that you said um Lisa a long time ago when um uh, back, even before Obama became president um that mm-hmm. we don't need um we don't need more insurance, we need health care, and so
1: we need access. Hmm. And- Many people who are listening now may not know that before Obamacare, the only people guaranteed coverage in the Constitution were prisoners. So prisoners have been guaranteed coverage since the inception of the United States of America. And um, having said that, people who don't believe health care is a right and a commodity are caught up in the corporate corruption of delivering the access. And so I think more and more people... Who are having to lose their homes because, and that's the number one cause of bankruptcy—losing your home because you, someone mm. in your family, had to file for protection from bankruptcy due to a healthcare cost. We'll see. We'll see the importance of it. Um, that's one thing I'd like to say. And I would also, um, in the context of how these things can be resolved, will they ever? Um, you know, what kind of headway can we make in healthcare inequities? I'm I'm someone who would like to come back to the transatlantic slave discussion, and I'd like to mention someone named Dr. Warren Perry. He's a professor of anthropology at Central Connecticut State University. Yeah, I, I know
0: Warren Perry. Yes, you know
1: Warren. Well, so yeah, I just you just talked to him. Well, what the one of the things that Warren told me a long time ago is that when he began to dig up bodies starting back in 1989 in Lower Manhattan, he discovered that a lot of the um, adults. The adults and children, the African slaves that were buried there, had differences in what's called enamel hyperplasia. And that's a difference uh, that means the enamel in your teeth has not erupted properly because of a calcium deficiency in the mother. Now, what's interesting to me about that is that that is still a dental issue for black and Latino children being treated in Hartford today. So slave children... And modern day children are suffering from the same disease. Wow! So the social the social impact of the vestigial part of slavery. My, I'm wondering, can it be ever overcome? That's just something that I'm wondering. So I think it's good for the listeners to see how long this we can document this healthcare disparity, how long it could be documented, and who's still suffering from the differences um that's what i would like to add to this um this part of the conclusion of the discussion
2: right 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 so um so kind of want to uh, round round it off by um asking you Alondra, um what's ahead for you i know that you you're working on a, on another book right now is that correct
0: yes i'm finishing a book um called uh, the socialising dna um that Looks at the use of um, genetic analysis and genetic ancestry testing and black political culture. Um, and I began the reason why I was recently in touch with Warren Perry is that I was talking to him about the African Burial Ground Project. Um, and uh, so the book begins with the emergence of a particular genetic ancestry testing company that comes out of the research of the African Burial Ground and then sort of traces. Or follows um, how this company's tests are used in reparations politics, are used in personal identity, are used in various kinds of projects around the African diaspora, and trying to get African Americans and continental Africans to kind of collaborate um, and projects um, based on uh, Black American DNA affiliations. So that's the uh, the book I'm working on now. So there's some obvious bridges, I think, from
2: the Panther world. Um, um, yeah. Yes, yes. 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 Indeed. You know, and I don't know very much, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, about uh, about it other than I keep hearing about people going to go uh, trying to find out. Well, what tribe do I belong to? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what's my what's my ancestry? And, and then, of course, you know, uh, you know, Lisa and I have, have discussed this about, you know, how folks find out. Well, I thought my ancestry was here, mm-hmm. but it's but it's 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 some it's it's someplace else that mm-hmm. you know we we have these these notions about what you know what do we how do we define you know who is black how do we define who is white and seems mm-hmm. like there's a lot of people finding out that uh, they're not as pure blooded as they thought they were sure <laughs> so right mm-hmm. right so uh, I'm looking forward to to seeing what what happens as a result of this and you know the idea of being able yeah. To make these connections um in in terms of um in terms of the the African diaspora me being able to to find out who where do we belong um, mm-hmm. you know in, in that kind of thing so um i, I this has been a wonderful uh, conversation this evening i wish we had more time <laughs> um but um i'm i'm really glad that we um so we've had a chance to, you know, to talk and to meet. You know, as, as, you know, for a long time. I think you've been. Um, you and I have 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 connected on on Twitter and 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 Yeah, we've on, been a vir- so. virtual friends. Yes. Yes, and so this is uh, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Alondra, for for uh, for coming aboard this evening, and Lisa, Lisa, thank you very much. Um, you know even though the time is sort of running out on this because of the way that things fit on here all of this you can still do your do your plug and so um let's start off with you Laura did you have anything that you wanted to plug anything that you'd like to like us to to to, uh, to draw attention to um I, I wanted to draw
0: attention to the fact that one of the the uh consequences of the shooting in aurora has been Um, you you know, uh, a recognition or, you know, hopefully an awareness of the fact that many of these people, some of them who are insured who've been injured are not going to have enough health care insurance coverage to pay for their damages. There was a story um, in the paper about um, uh, one of the people, one of the victims um, whose health care expenses are expected to go into the the millions of dollars, essentially two million, and he doesn't have health care coverage for that. So it's one thing yeah. to, to keep in mind about you know what Lisa's point about the difference between um, healthcare and healthcare access, or insurance and healthcare access. And I'll, yeah. also, I just wanted to point people to the Facebook page for Body and Soul. Um, they don't have to buy the book. There's lots of uh, archival information and such. And it's um, Facebook.com/backslash Body and Soul Nelson, all one word.
2: All right, all right. Thank you so much, Alondra. Thank you so much. Thank Lisa, you.
1: Did it's you a have real honor. Be- yes, yeah, thank, yes. Thank you, thank you yes. for having me. And on that um, on that note of violence, I'm um, I would encourage the listeners to write their legislator and get handgun law ch- changed in their um, state, and also to urge the um, to urge the powers that be to curtail handgun sales and ammunition sales over the internet.
2: I think we right can on. all benefit. Right
1: mm-hmm.
2: Right on. So that's, right that's all on. I have
1: to. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Nice to speak all with you, right.
2: Lisa. Nice all to speak right. with and you also. So, all right. Okay. So, great evening. Um, and we shall do this again. Have a good evening and good night. Good
0: night. With Lucky Lancelot, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry.